Tonight we welcome Agave Baroque to celebrate the release of their new album on a very special edition of On Stage with Jim and Tom. Featuring members from Boston, Fresno, Switzerland, and the Bay Area, the album features their largest agave band to date. 2008 will mark the 400th anniversary of the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, one of the longest and most destructive in European history. And their album that's coming out soon has a lot of music that comes from that era. And in that music, we see the immense power that music has to motivate, unite, comfort, heal, and lift people out of the depths of their grief. Tonight, they will play excerpts from a program that explores this music and a lot of other things. Agave Baroque. Welcome to the program, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks. Welcome. This program has a very specific focus, and I'm curious what was attractive about it. Or maybe Tom, who spent some time with it, could chime in. You know, actually, the first thing that I, that I was wondering is I was listening to Reggie sing. Um, and I had to ask him, what, what is the language you're singing? I was wondering, was that German? Because you you, uh, the pieces you're doing relate to the Thirty Years' War, and quite a bit of that war happened in what is now Germany. And uh, Reggie was telling me that it was Latin. Then you went on to mention that you actually were, uh, you learned to decipher different uh, styles and different uh, uh, dialects of Latin when you were going to college in, in Florida, is that correct? Yeah, different pronunciations, different types. Um, uh, Latin as a dead language tended tend to be filtered through whichever culture or area where, where it was sung. Um, so you would get a little bit of French um, pronunciation filtering into the into the, the Latin uh, sung there you'd get the same thing in Germany the same thing and it, and and as far as music goes we kind of have the understanding or we go with the understanding that that we would try and honor that f- filtration of Latin depending on when it was written and who it was written for and who wrote it so if there were perhaps a mass written in the middle of Tifton Georgia we would use Georgia Latin uh, because that's what the composer had in mind. I don't know that that exists. I hope it doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> but it could. Yeah, but it could. Reggie, so was this a mass that you were singing? Oh, no, no, no. This was just a, this was a short motet written by Johann Rosenmuller. And it was. And when, you, when you're singing in Latin, do you understand what you're singing? Uh, usually. What were you singing about? Do, do you, can you tell us what you were singing about in that song? No. No kidding, because I, did I hear uh, the expression exultant, I think, or... Uh, yes, at some point. It sounded like it was, uh, it was, it was a piece speaking of, of glory, almost. It had an uplifting feel to me at times, and it felt like whoever was expressing what they were expressing was something of, of, of an exaltation, maybe at times. Uh, was this piece written during and performed during the Thirty Years' War? It was written <clears throat> after the conclusion of the war. Uh, the basic gist of the text is is that uh, Christ, through Christ's living and dying for us, has raised us to heavenly joy. So it talks about the idea of Christ's sacrifice and what that sacrifice has brought. Beautiful. That raises an interesting point, and that is that the effect of the Thirty Years' War was was... Uh, 
you know, ongoing for generations afterwards, obviously because of the loss of life, but also the loss of culture. Because it, you know, it decimated, you know, entire countries full of people. Um, and uh, what, uh, in terms of music, what uh, the composers had to do and musicians had to do was rather than uh, reconstructing their music from a long history of, of tradition that they that they learned in school, was to really just find what was around them and and piece together a new language, a new musical language, out of what they heard around them. And that's why it's in a sense really compelling music now, looking back through history. Which is why I was asking about the lyrics and and uh, what were they singing about? What did they talk about after that? But what they do, a lot of them I think felt was that uh, at least whatever happened, they still had their relationship with God and Christ, uh, even though it was different uh, for depending on what side you were on. And the Catholics, the Catholic Church lost the Thirty Years' War, and the Protestants got to kind of uh, gain a little bit of strength back at that point. But they were still all exalting in Christ. And so so 1618 to 1648 was when the Thirty Year War happened. And when you say they decimated the culture, I mean, was was that just because the country was so devastated? Or did they go out of their way to decimate uh, the arts and the, the music and the background? And well, there, I mean, not only was there just a tremendous loss of life because of battle, but also um, uh, outbreaks of the plague and famine. Um, so it was just and it was widespread. Yeah, the four horsemen of the apocalypse were quite a literal thing at that point. Um, just the, the, the combination of poverty and disease and, and war and famine, it was just, it, it, it left a landscape that was just rutted with damage, both on a psychological level and on a cultural and a political level. And I think a lot of people were seeking solace in religion, were seeking solace in music. And if you, if you listen to these texts, this was really a time where the pietist influence was very high, both in the Catholic and the Protestant countries. And that focused on, on, on what, we, what we think of today as associated with a lot of, of old Baptist hymns, is the very personal one-on-one relationship with God. Right, you think of the old Baptist hymns like uh, "And He Walks with Me," "And He Talks with Me," right? Um, and he, uh, this is the same type of language that was used 300 years ago. Is the idea that that instead of asking the saints to intercede for us, we can actually speak directly with Jesus, invoke Jesus directly, speak directly to God? And this was, I think, a, a great solace in time of in, in times of war and destruction. And to Tom's question earlier, do you feel that when you're performing it? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear just from the harmony alone, uh, the, the deep emotional feelings that come up in the music. I mean, you don't even have to know the text to know what these pieces mean. Just hearing this incredibly rich five-note chord, you know. I think that's the, actually the best part about playing old music is that it puts us in touch with the fact that uh, we're dealing with humans from a very long time ago who had emotions and, and in some sense were uh, more in touch with their emotions than we could ever be because we have life pretty good, you know, compared to, to the way it was in the 17th century. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a direct link. 
in in a sense it's it's almost it's almost like a sense a kind of time travel because language has changed emotion is i mean language has changed people have changed nations have you know have been born and have died and and things have changed but the only thing that stayed constant from then till now and before and after us is emotion human emotion that much has not changed in the course of human of, of human history and that's something that we can still find some path back to this music and find a way that that affects us personally and in that moment whether it be because of something that happened to us that has is in no way related to what happened to them that emotion we felt are feeling now is the emotion they felt then and that really pulls us into and connects us to the music and connects us to everything that happened then in a, in a special way it becomes very very personal um and because you can you can through emotion you can link us now to what happened to them then in the same way you can also link that in us now to what happened to the african slaves in, in you know in the american south in the in the in the 18 1700s and so forth and to and to what's happened to you know perhaps the the japanese in this you know 14 1500s and and so forth and so forth i mean it's it's the thing that kind of links us all and makes us one and that's kind of where we're part of where we're going with that that's kind of what what we do as musicians is we help to link each other to this to this shared shared feeling the shared experience of emotion and that i think is what really makes great music uh transcend genres i don't care if it's baroque music like what we do or really good uh really good rock and roll or, or really good jazz or anything is if the music connects the head the heart and the feet if you can dance to it if you can feel it and if you can think it that's really what what transcends any kind of aesthetic uh, language medium everything like that performance style if it really appeals to the entire human being from the coarsest to the finest parts of you. That's what I think makes good music, and it's our responsibility as performers to be able to communicate those linguistic forms. The rest is details. And, you know, you mentioned that you can kind of get this experience uh, through any kind of music uh, that's good, that has something to convey, some kind of message um, and an experience to give. But you asked in the beginning of this uh, interview, Jim, uh, what draws you to this particular music? And uh, there, I think there are many good answers that we could give to that question. And, and one is kind of simple, I think, and that is that this music is, is so old and forgotten that for us it's, it's an exciting rush and, and to bring it alive again. And it's so old that it's new and it's fresh for us. And um, we enjoy the experience of... Um, speaking directly to these people and giving them a voice uh like like some treasures that, that we've found and and there's more answers like just how it's reliant on <clears throat> all of these parts the interplay the polyphony where all of the melody parts mixing together to create this beautiful tapestry and then we're underneath uh, just highlighting those harmonies that really are coming out of their parts in the the violins and the melody you know i was wondering uh i think the last piece you guys do tonight it was that a paco bell piece mm-hmm. yep. and uh so i'm watching you guys play it and i'm wondering i wonder on his deathbed 
did Paco Bell think, you know, people would be playing this 300 years? I think that most composers don't write for posterity. They're writing for themselves and for their community and they're, you know, hoping that it will get played once or twice at or that time around, you know, in the living room or, or in a to court. To make the rent. <laughs> to make the rent, exactly, <laughs> and maybe sell some copies. Um, but I, I think it's not until much, at least when we're dealing with 17th century music, it's not, it's not until much later, 100, 120 years later, um, where I think composers are starting to think about how will I be remembered? Or will my music be played in 20 years or 30 years or 100 years? You played two pieces tonight. Um, what was the first called? The first was by a German composer who studied in Italy named Johann Rosenmuller. The piece was called Christum Ducem Qui Per Crucem. You know, and uh, I have it right in front of me, but I knew I would pronounce it wrong, so thank you for <laughs> saying it. <laughs> um, any background on that piece in particular? Sure. It came from uh, Rosenmuller's, one of his early collections of sacred music from 1649. Uh, it was a collection of these small-scale sacred pieces, and again, this is part of what happened with this amazing war, uh, is that these composers studied in, in Venice at St. Mark's Cathedral, which was the which was the source of so much of the incredibly opulent multiple choir tradition that came out of Venice. That's what Venice was known for. I mean, the, the, the place was covered in gold. It was an amazing cathedral to look at, and they had multiple galleries. And so, really, that was the original 17th century surround sound. You had musicians in all of these different places making music uh, in, in multiple choirs here. And then all of a sudden, somebody like Rosenmuller goes to Germany and finds all of this death, destruction, and depletion of resources. And so, instead of writing these pieces for 12 parts, 15 parts, or orchestras and choirs, he's writing for one voice, two violins, and uh, and the continuo, the accompaniment section there, the foundation. So it's a radical departure from the music that he was used to when he was studying with the Gabriellis in Venice. And that's just another example of what the war does, going from magnificence and, and, and riches to a very sparse texture. Was it selected for any particular reason, or was it just sort of a good one it was just a good one <laughs> <laughs> it just was good well, I, so we did I, I mean i had a question for for henry maybe you would know uh when when would a composer choose to write in in latin versus german it had to do for audience that there were each each court and each patron that a lot of these composers were working for that uh, was a could be a lutheran could be a catholic and so this collection was dedicated to a Catholic nobleman for use in a private chapel. So the music was, the, there was Latin music, but there was also music in the German vernacular in the same collection. So it's Rosenmuller hedging his bets on making sure that if you bought this collection, and this music was published, it wasn't a manuscript. So if you bought this collection, there was at least something that you could use if you were a Lutheran, and there was something you could use if you were a Catholic. And the second piece that we did tonight... Pachel Bell. And this was the Canon and Jig. Pachel Bell was uh, actually a member of a very talented family. Um, his daughter, Anna Amalia, I believe, published the first collection of knitting patterns that we have. Um, his son, William Hieronymus, was an organist as well. And his son, Carl Theodor, 
moved to Boston and then later to Charleston, South Carolina, changed his name to Carl Theodore, and was the organist at St. Michael's Episcopal Church for the rest of his life in Charleston, South Carolina. So we have a direct collection, but connection between Johann Pachelbel in Charleston, North, uh, South Carolina. Uh, but the father, Johann, was a, a very prolific composer, mostly of organ music and, and organ and choir music. Uh, he left us just a, a small collection of chamber music. What year did he write this in? We don't have a date for this. I mean, probably between the late 1670s and early 1690s when he was doing a lot of his chamber music. And this is an incredibly well-known piece. Right. That's what the, one of the reasons why we chose it was uh, for this program was to show it in context um, with other music. I think people, people know this piece and don't really know anything about it. They people just know, know the first half of the piece. Yeah. Right, and the second right. half was fantastic. I'd yeah, never heard it. It's great, they, they, isn't it? Yeah. They know the first half of the half. <laughs> they know the first half of that because yeah. by that point, the you know the bride and groom are up. That's right. right. <laughs> and they also know the piece about twice as slowly as all indications on the paper suggest that it would have been played. Uh, and this is just the the thing with when you have this baggage from trying to 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 perform and and realize a piece that is this old uh, the popularity of this piece mostly is due to the fact that it was part of a film score to a movie called ordinary people in 1980 uh, and it was uh, arranged for a large symphony orchestra and played at a tempo that somewhere was between lugubrious and grave-like uh, and of course, the, the people that perfect were perfect for a wedding. Perfect for a wedding. That's right. Here comes the bride, you know, in a coffin. Uh, so, I think that's part of the of, of of what we try to do, and we claim to be in in what we what we call the historical historically informed performance movement, and that's having to take a score like this and deconstruct strip the strip all the layers of accretion of of the way that people have done it before without really understanding where this music comes from or the context in which it was done and there's a lot of information on the paper that gives you clues if you understand where this music comes from about how it would have been performed there are there are just licks and and gestures and and riffs that you recognize if you play enough of this music of the period that gives you a sense for how it might have been done uh, as opposed to how we take it for granted that other people have done it. So in other words, this music may be old, but we're making it new. Is there anything you'd like to speak about the greater program uh, outside of just these two songs? Um, Because this is is an important piece. I mean, this, this is not a small amount of work to put together something like this. So obviously you all feel strongly about this music, this project, this group. Uh, if, if you wanted to add anything about the, the upcoming release or, you know, the time you've spent with this music, I'd, I'd, we'd love to hear it. I've got a follow-up question and uh, perhaps an answer. And uh, so we were talking about like, you know, the carnage of the 30 years war. Uh, and yet the title that uh, Henry and, Reggie and Aaron came up with was uh, Peace in Our Time. So explain that. What a great opportunity for everyone to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were we were trying to trying to find a, a concept for this album because we we really built the program around 
some a few pieces from this repertoire and then trying to look at everything that we were putting together and and uh, one of the more interesting pieces that's on the album is this beautiful large-scale motet by a composer named David Pola uh, who's very seldom recorded and we're just looking at all of this repertoire and saying all right what is uh, okay we all have this connection to the 30 years war but what is what is all of this saying and uh, there's one line from from one of the pieces on the program uh, by a composer named Franz Tunder uh, that 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 is just it's this incredibly powerful prayer right grant us peace in our time and this this phrase just really resonated me resonated with me and especially with the current political climate both at home and and across the world right now i think this is a message that if we can do anything to advance i think it's our responsibility as artists to be able to, to we have this unique historical perspective we're looking at this music from a period where where europe was trashed by this war and if there's any way that we can do our little piece to say, do we really need to do this again? <laughs> um, one of the things I think is the greatest about this, the, the intent that you guys put in this project, which is to try to perform it the way that it was, you know, is that the people who made this music were feeling certain emotions. And like you guys said earlier so beautifully, those emotions are something that connects us to them. One of the few things that connects us to people throughout the the last however long, you know? And uh, it's it's pretty remarkable to me that they were feeling something, the people they played it for felt those emotions, and now you are playing it and, and hopefully making people feel those same emotions. There's something just really wonderful and magical about that. And, uh, I mean, that's about... That's pretty much why we do this. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I I would imagine we could all at least, you know, get on that bandwagon. It's not for the money. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I remember uh, a master class one time with, uh, I believe it was Pepe Romero, uh, guitar master class, and, and there was some young guy and doing his best to play some uh, music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And um, Pepe Romero said to the boy, he said, you know, this music is this, you know, monument of the excellence of the human mind and spirit. And he said, but it's just a bunch of print on a page in this in this room right here with these people without you. And he looked at the boy and 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 it was it struck me in that moment that that kid was bringing box music to all of us. And it gave him this incredible worth. And uh, even though maybe other people do it better on recordings or. Uh, in concerts or in that moment, right in that space, he was the only one that was making it real. And it, it was very special. And I feel that too when I play. It's a rare feeling, but when you have it, you just keep seeking it. Well, and it's special for us because we've never had a, a group that plays music like this on here. So I, I hope and it is our intention that there will be others that share that experience because you guys were on this tonight. So do um, you have any closing thoughts for us? No, this was a gas. Thank you so much for coming and doing this. Uh, it's, it was very, welcome. very beautiful and we appreciate it and um, are really looking forward to the project coming out later this year. So. Um, this has been Agave Baroque. Thank you guys for joining us. And in just a moment, we're going to see um, a couple pieces from this program. So once again, thank you guys for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
Sunt colaga, nobis gratas, sunt colaga. 